This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. There's shocking news about how much it costs to maintain electric vehicles just out, and we'll tell you all about it. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris is recovering from a, uh, a little bit of an illness, but he sounds robust and uh, ready to talk to us, based in Maine. Uh, you're doing okay, aren't you, Chris? Yeah, I like robust. I'll take that. Over the past few days, I'm feeling more robust today. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you know, a bout of whatever you had is not the best. And, you know, getting it from a, an animal within the home, maybe <laughs> even worse. <laughs> I don't want to scare people. I don't live in a zoo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you do not. But you do live in Maine and probably have nature around you and all that wonderful stuff. So... Uh, good for you. I, I expect Maine probably in late May is a pretty cool place to be. It is. Uh, the eagles in our backyards are of our backyard is are busy hunting. The fish are biting, and uh, I can't wait to get out and do some fishing. So uh, maybe I'll join the eagles later this afternoon. Ah, that sounds terrific. Well, good for you. I will be journey, journeying up to Montana to drive the new Nissan Pathfinder, the 2022 Nissan Pathfinder, this afternoon after recording the show. So. Uh, I have that going for me, and that should be interesting. I haven't been to Montana in quite some time, so uh, I imagine it's similar <laughs> to what it was before, but that should be fun. This week, our special guest is Mike Battaglia. He is Senior Vice President for Sales at Blink. That's a company that's a big player in the EV charging business and, of course, EV infrastructure and, and really how you set up your home to have an EV is an important part of uh, the success or maybe the not, lack of success of EVs going forward. So we'll have an in-depth chat with him about that. I think you'll enjoy that. In the road test segment, Chris, tell us about the vehicle uh, that you will be road testing in the next segment. I spent the week in a 2021 Nissan Armada. Wow, very cool. And there's plenty of room in there to spend the whole week. I don't think you literally meant you <laughs> spent the whole week in there, but uh, you did. You know, that's a sizable vehicle, so good for you in doing that. And I had another uh, SUV, but not quite as large, the Volkswagen Atlas, uh, and I'll talk a bit about that, uh, a vehicle I like quite a bit uh, to kind of tip you off as to how that's going to go. Uh, I'm not going to slam it, let's put it that way. One of the things we did uh, allude to just now was uh, service costs for EVs, and uh, I think it's a bit of a shock to me. I mean, uh, and I don't mean that in a, a the pun type of way. It was just surprising to me uh, that EV costs, at least according to a company called We Predict, are, are higher for EVs than they are for uh, gasoline vehicles. Uh, what, what's your take on that, Chris? Yeah, that kind of flies in the face of what we've heard and learned a lot about EVs. You know, fewer moving parts, uh, technically, you know, it's more simple operations. So, um, the only thing I could come up with is that maybe people have a learning curve and they get more worried about noises and things that happen to their EVs in the first few months. I, I really can't put my finger on it. Yeah, I think one of the things they cited was that parts are more expensive for EVs. I can't imagine that you're going to have a ton of parts and replacing a ton of parts over the first 90 days of ownership. <laughs> 
Uh, but uh, we predict said that the average cost for a vehicle for EVs was $123 in the first 90 days. That seems like a lot. I would think in the first 90 days it shouldn't be much at all. There were $53 for gasoline cars and $46 for hybrids. And again, hybrids being way different than EVs is a bit counterintuitive too. Uh, but that's what they found out. Honda was a, a very strong brand uh, among the non-premium brands, the mass market brands, and Hyundai was right there. Buick, of course, or maybe not, of course, but uh, pe people uh, should think of Buick uh, and uh, low cost in terms of maintenance uh, in the same breath. And of course, Toyota was in there as well. So I think uh, there was no surprises by Honda and Toyota being in there. I think those of us in the know uh, realize that Hyundai has done a really good job in that lately. Yeah, no surprise with Hyundai, or I'm sorry, Honda and Toyota. Hyundai's, you know, doing great, as you noted, and Kia's moving up, too. I think the big surprise here for me is at the bottom end of that list with Chevy at $83 and GMC at an average of $132. It makes me question, not question the data, but question the methodology or question who had the GMC vehicles that ended up, you know, more than uh, quadrupling or almost whatever, five times that of the Honda. So um, really surprising on that end. One thing that uh, is, I'm a little saddened by is Tesla isn't officially in the, the analysis. And of course, they are the bulk of EVs. So I guess if you're not including Tesla among EVs, maybe things are, are a little different than uh, they are in the real world where Tesla dominates in terms of EVs uh, in service. But I think it's an interesting look at service costs. They're, of course, an important part of cost to own. I think after 90 days, things get even worse. <laughs> Uh, and years into it, you're, you're spending a lot in service, and you should, of course, keep ahead of service uh, rather than letting things uh, decline, and then you have much more expensive repairs to deal with. So something interesting from breaking news from the Deep View True Cost Report from We Predict. Well, Volkswagen has introduced its 2022 Tiguan. We're seeing a lot of 2022s right now. And this is the U.S. spec version of the 2022 Tiguan. We've, we've seen uh, European versions of this before, so it was pretty easy to predict what this would look like. This is an update of the second-generation Volkswagen. The big news, I think, is they're upping their technology game. They make the 8-inch digital cockpit instrument cluster standard, which I like. And then they have the Volkswagen Digital Carnet, which is an interesting feature or interesting group of features that includes Wi-Fi capability uh, that's now standard. And um, other things within the MIB3 infotainment interface and operating system, you get wireless charging, wireless connections for your apps. So you can hook up uh, Apple CarPlay or Android Auto wirelessly, which is nice. Of course, you might want to plug it into... Uh, charge it, or of course use wireless charging, and you can get a 10-inch digital cockpit. You've driven some vehicles with digital cockpit. What's your what's your feeling about digital cockpit? I absolutely love it. I think the more sort of information and display, I guess, and as long as it's intuitive and or well organized, which Volkswagen and Audis are, um, it's it's great because you don't have to take your eyes off the road. It's all right in front of you there in the gauge cluster. You know, most applications are are pretty good. There can be some confusion, you know, too much information right in front of you. But like I said, VW and Audi do a good job of it. Absolutely. Another thing that they're adding is IQ Drive, or they're adding to IQ Drive. That is essentially their equivalent of some of the other uh, suites of driver assistance features. Their version of IQ Drive for the Tiguan in 2022 includes forward collision warning, forward emergency braking with pedestrian detection, 
blind spot monitor, rear cross traffic alert, and lane keeping system. So that's good. It also has adaptive cruise control with stop and go. Are you one who uses adaptive cruise control with stop and go? Do you trust that and, and feel good about that? I trust it, Jack, but I'll tell you, and we can get into this later with the, the review of the Nissan, but uh, in heavy traffic, it, it kind of can be can, uh, annoying because people can just scoot right in front of you and keep moving you back and back and back, depending on how you have the distance, the following distance set up. So I think there are great use cases for it. And then times when it is just terribly annoying. Yeah. Well, I'm right with you there. And a lot of times I'm just as uh, happy to drive the car myself. Maybe I'm old school. <laughs> I am old, so maybe I'm old school as well and uh, do that. But uh, there you go. All four of the 2022 Tiguan trim levels will offer four-motion all-wheel drive, so that's good. Power is from the two-liter four-cylinder TSI engine, 184 horsepower, uh, reasonable amounts of horsepower. And you can expect to see that Tiguan in U.S. dealers this summer. Uh, when we come back... We will be talking about another Volkswagen vehicle, the Volkswagen Atlas. That's a vehicle I drove for the course of a week, and we'll have my road test on that. And, of course, Chris will be taking a look at the uh, big Nissan Armada SUV, one of the full-size SUVs out there. Probably a sleeper value, I think, but uh, we'll tell you about that when we come back. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad with you, and you're listening to America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague. This is Jack D. Red back with you for Road Test Time. One of the segments of the show that we like very much. Of course, I guess we like all of the segments. But, Chris, do you like Road Test Time more than, say, any other segment that we do? I think it's probably my favorite. Yes, I could say that. Oh, good. Okay, well, uh, then we have a <laughs> high standard here to live up to, and uh, we'll try to do that. We have two interesting vehicles in Road Test Time, so that's good. Uh, the Nissan Armada and the Volkswagen Atlas. Chris, tell us all about the uh, Nissan Armada that you were driving over the course of the past week. Absolutely. I spent the week in the 2021 Nissan Armada Platinum. This is the range-topping trim. It clocked in at around $68,000 after taxes and destination and whatnot. Uh, you can spend as little as about $51,000, somewhere a little bit less than that for the S model. Um, most are pretty well-equipped, but like I said, this one came with all the bells and whistles. But uh, all models get a 5.6 liter V8. I uh, got 10 more horsepower, I believe, for the 2021 model year to 400 now and 413 pound-feet of torque. A um, lot of great features in this vehicle. The, the interior at the top end, so the platinum trim, is quilted leather, heated and cooled seats, heated steering wheel, 12.3-inch uh, infotainment screen with Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, navigation, the works. And one of the things that you brought up in the earlier segment that was a little bit of a drawback for me at first, but that I really came to embrace over the few days that I drove it uh, extensively was its size. So at first, I mean, you, it looks huge, it's imposing. And from behind the wheel, it feels big and imposing, which can sometimes be a drawback. But in this case, once I got the kids in, got some gear loaded up and then took, you know, we hit the road for a couple of days and it was excellent. And I can't say enough about the comfortable comfort in the second row. Um, of course, I was driving the whole time, but the time that I did spend sitting back there checking things out, excellent comfort in the second row captain's chairs, plenty of leg room for me at six feet in both the front, second, and even the third row, which I didn't sit in for very long, but uh, lots of room. And I don't know about you, Jack, but for me, we have two kids, a dog, my wife and myself. So for the five of us, that size vehicle 
as much as I try to say you don't need the big SUV, it sometimes it's just awesome to have it. What do you think? I 100% agree. We have had a Chevy Tahoe, which is essentially the same size vehicle for years and years and years. Don't ask my wife how long we have had this car, uh, but it's well over a decade. It might be over two decades, to tell you the truth. But having that big three-row, uh, there's just a lot to like about it. You don't always need that room, but when you do... Or just to have it and just to be able to throw in that extra bag or that extra piece of gear, it's a nice thing to do. I agree. Even with uh, the third row folded up, we had room for the dog in the way back and we had room for some luggage next to him and he still had time, you know, the ability to lay down on his blanket and have, have a good ride. So no complaints there. One thing I will say, though, is that the size and then that big V8 engine uh, do drain a fuel economy quite a bit. EPA says you should get around 19 miles per gallon on the highway. I think I averaged around 18 and a half, so not too much worse. Uh, again, we we did have a car full of gear, which is probably not how they test their fuel economy. Full suite of safety gear in this guy. The blind spot monitoring had Nissan safety shield, so lane uh, lane departure um, warnings, lane keep assist, and the whole deal. And uh, they've done a great job with integrating those into the driving experience so that the alerts aren't annoying they're not scary so sometimes you kind of wander out of the lane and you hear beeping or the steering wheel vibrates and it can be kind of alarming if you're not used to those things uh, but that was not the case here uh, all around a great ride very smooth i think it's independent suspension all the way around um, the uh, large wheels didn't harsh the ride too much the, the engine provided great power it's nice and quiet i drove it down to boston and then drove a different vehicle back um, and thoroughly enjoyed the ride now i will say as we just mentioned in the previous segment about adaptive cruise control, this is not Nissan's fault. It's just a function of the way that the system works. But, uh, you know, depending on how you have that following distance uh, set up, you can end up with a lot of people just scooting in front of you. And as anyone who's ever driven in Boston knows, that's kind of the uh, the MO of Boston drivers is if there's a tiny gap, they're going to take it. So uh, that's probably not the best time to use adaptive cruise control. But in any case, uh, solid vehicle. I don't think you need to spend the total $68,000 to get the most loaded up model to get a good experience out of this. I think the mid-range uh, SV trim could be a little bit, it's a little bit cheaper and it has a lot of the same great features and you can add some safety equipment to that too. But um, do I recommend it? Absolutely. I think it's a good a good option in the segment. You mentioned value and I think the price puts it right where it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, as I said uh, earlier or opening the segment, I think this is maybe a sleeper value out there. I don't know that a lot of people necessarily think of the Nissan Armada when they're thinking of full-size full SUVs. I still think that's a, an area where the domestics kind of rule, the Chevy Tahoes, Ford Expeditions, etc. But uh, it's certainly worth a look, and I think there's a lot to like about the Armada overall. Totally agree. And I was driving the Volkswagen Atlas, and here's another vehicle I think that there's a lot to like about. Uh, and this is un uh, an unusual year for the Volkswagen Atlas because Volkswagen did this fairly rare mid-model year change. There was a 2021 Atlas, and then they changed things up somewhere into the model year. What they did was they added infotainment and driver assistance features that I don't think were ready at the factory to be put in the car. They actually did some styling changes, though, too, and they call it a 2021.5. So that's unusual. It's not unheard of, but unusual. Of course, the Atlas is a three-row vehicle with room for up to seven adults. It can also be configured for six. The nice thing, one of the nice things about it is the third row can actually accommodate adults, which is fairly rare. And to do that in a 
Midsize SUV is interesting. It, of course, is built in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I say, of course, uh, those of us in the know realize that. I think a lot of people uh, consider this a, an import, probably from uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, but that's not true. With this revision, it is one of the longest vehicles in the segment, and that length translates into interior room. This has a remarkable amount of interior room. Uh, even compared to other vehicles like the Ford Explorer and the Honda Pilot, which are also quite roomy, <laughs> noted for their room, but the Atlas outdoes that. So a lot to like about this vehicle. One of the uh, added features uh, that they put in is the new Volkswagen MIB touchscreen information system, and it uses capacitive touch sensors like a smartphone, so you can swipe and you can pinch and do all those things that you do to your phone. Do you pinch your phone, Chris? Do I pinch my phone? Um, only when I can't help it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, at least you admit it. And uh, that's uh, that's part of solving that problem. It's not a problem. Of course, I, I kid. <laughs> the Atlas also is very uh, economical. I'm, I'm kind of amazed because I think it has kind of a, a premium feel to it. Do you get a premium feel out of the Atlas versus some of the others? I do. I think they've done a good job kind of setting it on uh, its own level in, in the Volkswagen lineup. Yeah. The starting MSRP is only $32,750, and, and then there's a, about a $1,200 destination charge uh, included in that. So that's quite good. I would say the base S version isn't necessarily the version you'd want to get, but if you got a middle-of-the-line SEL uh, with a V6 engine and with 4Motion, their all-wheel drive system, and I think that's really worthwhile to get in this particular vehicle— You'd only be looking at a list price of $42,840. So I think that's, that's kind of a bargain with, with something that seems so premium. And then if you want to go sporty, well, uh, depending on how you, how you define sporty, certainly in terms of sporty looks, the SEL R-Line with 4Motion is about $47,000. It has the V6 engine. It has 21-inch alloy wheels. Wow, they're getting up to the size of my 1926 Nash. It has the digital cockpit that uh, you and I both like. Uh, a bunch of standard features. I mean, a laundry list. I can't even go through them all. It isn't sporty in the sense that there's a lot of horsepower, however. <laughs> I guess if there's a shortfall with the Atlas, it is the power delivery. Two powertrain choices. A 235 horsepower, 2-liter turbocharged four-cylinder. Or the 3.6-liter V6, or the 3.6-liter V6, and that's available in the SE with technology and higher trims. It has kind of funky trim level names. It's only 276 horsepower. You can get a lot more horsepower in many of the other vehicles, the Ford Explorer, for example. Also, there's a little bit of shortfall in terms of fuel economy. You maybe give up one or two miles per gallon, but... You get tons of room, an amazing amount of room. The interior space and luggage space are just uh, almost amazing. If you fold all the seats, you get almost 100 cubic feet of cargo space. That's uh, besting the key competitors by 10 cubic feet or so, so that's a, that's a ton. Good infotainment and connectivity. I can't list all the features that are in this new MIB3 system but wireless app connect and all that stuff is really, really good. It has essentially the same kind of uh, overall safety that I talked about in the first segment uh, when I was talking about Tiguan. So uh, all in all, I think the Atlas is a, a really good buy in the segment. I think you get a vehicle that, that looks to be premium, almost a luxury vehicle. It certainly stands out in its segment, and uh, 
now I need to get your take before we get out of this segment. <laughs> well, I totally agree. And I'll say this, uh, you know, I've bragged on Volkswagen's infotainment system several times. The latest version is excellent. Their implementation of the capacitive touchscreen, yes, you can pinch and swipe and zoom. But one of the things they do really well is sort of a predictive touch where, you know, when you're reaching to the screen, it, it lights back up and lets you, you know, select more options. It changes when your hands get near it. Uh, VW also does really good with seat comfort. One of the things I liked about the second row in the Atlas is that its seats are extremely comfortable. They're well padded for longer drives. You know, you can ride back there and not get the hump in your back or the crick in the back of your leg or whatever. Uh, people like myself who have injured themselves repeatedly get on long drives. So all around a great, great effort. And like you said, the price is uh, the price is right. Yeah, the, the uh, second row seats slide independently, slide forward, slide backward. That's uh, very, very useful. They fold independently. Uh, so all is good uh, within Volkswagen Atlas land. So we, we certainly have two vehicles that are worthy of consideration, the Nissan Armada and the Volkswagen Atlas. Both of us are family guys, and those are certainly family vehicles. So... Uh, some, some keepers this time around. Agree. And when we come back, we will be taking your listener questions. So stand by for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad, and we thank you very much for listening to America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague, Jack Nerad, with you. And it is listener question time. We love to take your listener questions. It's easy to reach us with your listener question. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, editor at drivingtoday.com is the place you would send your question to us, and we'll answer it on an upcoming show. So please send us along, and if you like the show, please pass us along to others that you think might like to, to hear two guys talking about cars, which is what we do each week. Uh, here is a listener question, and this is from Frank in Ventura, California. Not too far from me, actually. Why is uh, summer blend gas more expensive than regular gas? And what's going on with that? I, you have a take on that, Chris? And I, I certainly do as a Californian, but uh, you across <laughs> country probably have a take on it as well. Well, I'm not going to go too deep into it because I will be honest and say that I'm not an expert on summer blend gas, but I will say that gas evaporates very quickly and the, the mix for summer is blended so that it does not evaporate as quickly. Um, lower volatility. And so from depending on where you are and who refines or delivers your gas, the mix or the the blend will be different and then also by octane level. Now, in terms of why it costs differently or costs a different amount, I will lean on you for that expertise, Jack. Well, really, it has to do with supply and demand or has to do with economies of scale, I guess, maybe even more so. If every car used the same blend of gas winter and summer across the country, it would be a lot easier for refiners than having different blends of gas required at different times of the year and in different parts of the country, which is what we have. Uh, in California, for example, we use summer blend gas, uh, and it's kind of distilled or refined almost specifically for California because the states around us don't use summer blend gas in the, at least in the same volume that we do, and I think it's required in the state of California. So having to create different blends of gas and getting the amount right, <laughs> you know, the amount to meet demand, you might make too much or you might make too little. And I think uh, most recently we've seen uh, too little being refined of particular types of gas 
which then sends the price of gas skyrocketing. I mean, price of gas here in Southern California right now is about 450 a gallon, uh, which is almost twice what it was. Maybe it is twice what it was 18 months ago. So I mean, that's that's a big, big deal. Uh, it's a big part of most people's budget, their transportation budget, certainly, but just their overall monthly budget. And to have something double in price, that's amazing. Yeah, especially when you're planning on doing road trips and hanging out with the family for the summer, it can be a real downer. <laughs> and I would think it's difficult for the oil companies, especially given the fact that we've been in pandemic and lockdown and there hasn't been a lot of travel, there hasn't been a lot of car travel. Certainly the demand on gasoline has been down pretty significantly. And then to kind of roar out of this, uh, apparently uh, California is going to open up totally on June 15th, for example. They are pushing the fact of doing travel, <laughs> getting out there and hitting the road and doing a lot of, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of domestic travel this year. So the gasoline supplies are going to be tested. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mentioned driving to Boston in the last segment on my way down on Saturday. There were just droves and droves of people New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Cal or not California, Florida, all making their way to Maine, uh, either for vacation or for their summer home. So uh, we're well on our way to be opening up here in a couple of weeks as well. So Well, it'll uh, test our gasoline supply and we'll get through this. And, uh, you know, the laws of supply and demand hey, cannot be repealed <laughs> no matter who's in power or what government is with us or whatever. So uh, that's always going to be the case. And uh, we'll have to see how this unfolds. If, if we let the market work, I think the market will work just fine and we'll get where we need to be. So when we come back, we will be doing our interview with somebody who doesn't have to care as much about gasoline and his name is Mike Battaglia. He is the senior vice president at Blink, an EV charging company, and he has very interesting things to say, I think, about uh, what's got to happen for EVs to get further adoption. So we'll talk with him right after the break. Stay with us, everybody, with Chris Teague. This is Jack Nerad with you, and we appreciate you listening to America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nerad back with you, and we have a terrific guest for you. What a knowledgeable guy Mike Battaglia is. He is a senior vice president of sales and business development for Blink, a company called Blink that does electric vehicle charging. And on the show, if you've been listening to America on the Road over the past several weeks, you've heard nothing but EV story after EV story after EV story. So, Mike, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, tell us about Blink. I mean, certainly uh, the idea of getting vehicles charged is <laughs> critical to the success of electric vehicles as a consumer product. Uh, walk us through that a little bit, would you? Absolutely. Um, you know, what's interesting about what you just said is that Blink thinks of themselves as much more than an EV charging company. And I'll kind of explain what that means. In, in many ways, we consider ourselves to be a technology company with EV charging as one aspect of that. So I, I like to think of the company having three legs of the stool. And one leg of the stool is very much uh, EV charging hardware. The second leg of that stool, though, is integrating very interesting technologies into the EV charging experience. And one example of that is we're doing some pilot work right now, integrating uh, broadband cellular into an EV charging station in order to place charging stations uh, within areas of a community that have gaps in broadband 
uh, connectivity. So that might be in disadvantaged communities or low income communities, things like that. The third leg of the stool is a division of Blink called Blink Mobility, which is actually a car sharing service that we own, uh, that we recently acquired in the city of LA. So our flagship uh, entry into the car sharing business is in the city of LA. Uh, we have 40 plus uh, Chevy Bolts running around and the charging infrastructure in order to fuel them. So Blink is a 12 year old company. We're uh, growing like crazy as you would expect in this space, but it's, it's an exciting time. Absolutely. Well, so much going on. Let's talk a bit though about, I guess, the basics and that's electric sure. vehicle charging. And mm -hmm. when one thinks about electric vehicle charging, especially if they've never driven an electric vehicle and never experienced an electric vehicle, or even if they have, but they have not owned an electric vehicle, which I think is a vastly different thing than, than driving one, Right. the experience is different. Uh, the whole process is a bit different. Walk our listeners through that, would you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so a couple things to keep in mind when we talk about this, right? One is it's estimated that about 75% of all charging events will take place at home. And when I say at home, I mean, could be a single family home with an EV charger installed in your garage, or it could be uh, that I live in a multifamily dwelling, right? An apartment building and uh, where I park uh, in the parking lot of the apartment building, they have you know, a whole bunch of chargers for me to charge my car. Right. So that compares with about, you know, 0% of, of people who are filling up their car with gasoline at home, right? I mean, that's and, a and, giant difference. And I'll tell you, that's the epiphany. I just bought an electric vehicle about three weeks ago. And that's the epiphany that you come to when you, you start to experience this, right? Because really, you're never probably going to go to a gas station again. And the convenience level of pulling into your driveway or pulling into your garage or pulling into your parking garage uh, and just plugging this thing in overnight and charging it and being ready to go in the morning is really, really incredible. And I think that's something that a vehicle tester like me, who doesn't experience it that way, has to be educated about, right? I mean, when I get an electric vehicle to test, I don't have any infrastructure in my home to charge the vehicle. So, if anything, I'm going to do some level one charging. It's going to take me a, a little longer than forever to, to get some charge in the battery, <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, at, at that rate. And I'm going to come away not very satisfied with that, probably. Uh, but on the other hand, if I have that ability to charge much faster with at least level two charging in my home, then the whole thing changes around. Uh, it does a complete 180. And, and you've experienced that, right? firsthand. So last night I had, uh, I ran my car down to less than 40 miles of charge left on the car, uh, plugged it in at 9 PM last night. And when I woke up this morning, it was fully charged. I have no idea what time it actually finished, but you know, probably somewhere around 4 AM, uh, it was done and, uh, I was ready to go again this morning. But, you know, even if I don't have that convenience in my home, you know, the other sort of 25% of the market is public charging, commercial charging, right? And that really leads into kind of a whole nother discussion about how do EV drivers behave when they are about their daily lives and they have an electric vehicle. 
Yeah, let's let's dive into the home charging thing because I think Blink is deep into into home charging and give us some thoughts about that. And then let's absolutely go to public charging because you're also big time in that. And I, I think that's where a lot of people's questions are, arise. But describe to us just the, in fairly simple terms uh, how you set up a home charging situation and then uh, you know what it costs and then sure. how you go on with that. Yeah, sure. So. There's uh, really two aspects to installing an EV charging station at your house. One of them is the charger itself. Obviously, I got to go buy a charger. And the second is uh, getting that charger wired properly in the right spot, right? So uh, most uh, home residential charging stations uh, have what's called a NEMA 650 plug. And that is a fancy term for the basic uh, plug configuration that my dryer plugs into, right? So most likely what I need is an electrician to come to the house and to install that plug in, you know, uh, in an area that makes sense to hang the charging station uh, in order to uh, reach the uh, charging port on my car conveniently, right? So it's literally just those two things. It's have an electrician come install it. It probably that will run you, you know, depending on your home and the power available and that kind of thing, probably anywhere from about eight hundred to fifteen hundred dollars. And then the charger itself, uh, you'll be able to acquire a charger from anywhere from you know five hundred to you know, a thousand dollars, depending on all the features and functionality that you want in the charger itself. Me personally, I have a pretty basic charger at my house. It, uh, it's a 32 amp charger and, uh, it doesn't have any fancy features. I just, you know, I just, it's very, very simple. When I want to plug it in, I just plug it in and it starts charging. There you go. And you really should do that. I mean, you should figure that cost, that, that effort into buying an electric vehicle, because if you don't do that, you're really shortchanging yourself over time, aren't you? I, I, I think you're right. You know, it is when, when you're shopping for an EV, uh, you know, EV drivers are, are saying, you know, how much does the car cost compared to, you know, an internal combustion engine, right? And I think everybody is pretty well aware that it's cheaper to own once you've acquired a, a, an EV, it's cheaper to own it than an internal combustion engine. But I think a lot of people don't factor in that cost of getting set up at home. So, you know, the good news is it's a one-time cost, right? So you get that done. And then for as long as you own the vehicle, you have that convenience and you have the lower cost of electricity versus gasoline. Right. And Blink makes and markets those kind of systems, correct? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, we sure do. So our first generation home charger uh, is actually uh, end of life right now. And we are transitioning to uh, a new charger that will be introduced at the beginning of July. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a pretty basic unit. I mean, what, what we're really trying to do, at least in the initial stages here is as people are purchasing EVs for the first time and they're dipping their toe into this, uh, you know, into this world, we're trying to keep costs down. Right. So one of the things that we're doing is in fact, the charger that I have in my garage is a pre-production model of this charger that's coming out and it's going to be a pretty basic unit. Um, but it's fast. And it's super easy to operate. It literally is. I walk over to my charge port, I plug it in, and the car starts charging, and I don't have to do anything else. So that's kind of our next iteration. And then in the early part of next year, we're going to come out with a whole new range of residential charging stations. 
And there'll probably be three different configurations depending on uh, the feature set that and the applications, but they will be anything from a very basic charger to more sophisticated charger that could actually cross over from residential to commercial type applications, depending on uh, who's using it. So is there anything more that a, a car buyer should know about setting themselves up uh, with a home charger before we go on to other subjects? No, I think, you know, what you really want to make sure of is that like purchasing any other product out in the market, right? You want to do your research. You want to understand uh, the way that the charger is connected because some of them require hard wiring into electrical and others are simply a plug, right? And I think the plug option is is more convenient. It's simpler uh, for homeowners. Uh, and, you know, you want to just make sure that you understand the speed of the charger you're buying, how long it's going to take to charge your car, you know, things things like that. Yeah, absolutely true. All right, let's switch over to uh, charging out there in the, in the wild universe uh, beyond your home, uh, beyond your garage. Uh, and in some ways, it almost is the Wild West in a way, right? I mean, a lot is going on. Uh, a lot of companies are vying for this. Uh, you have governmental entities involved in this. Every type of business is uh, looking to install chargers uh, in their parking lots, uh, Talk to us about all of that. Sure, sure. It's a, yeah, it's a broad spectrum, but we'll be able to distill it down. So first of all, the one thing that I want listeners to understand is that literally every single parking spot out there is an opportunity to place an EV charging station. It doesn't mean that you're going to do it, but the potential is there, right? So number one, it it is... Uh, industry agnostic, right? It's not like uh, I, I'm only charging or I'm only selling or providing charging stations to gas station locations because that's where everybody's gone to refuel their car, right? It is literally pick your pick your uh, industry vertical. You know, we have charging stations going into hospitals. We have them going into uh, retail locations. We have them going to multifamily residences. We have them going to car dealerships. We have them going to you p- pick it, right? Pick it that you know they're. Uh, it strikes me that yeah, well, it strikes me that uh, something like a gas station is a t- actually a terrible place for this because the car is going to be there for a period of time. In a gas station, you're in and out in five minutes, you're gone, right? Yeah. So let me yeah let me tell you what my thoughts are on 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 gas stations. It depends on the application and it depends on where they're located. So. I'll give you an example of what a good gas station location could be for EV charging is on a uh, major highway corridor where uh, an EV driver can pull off and they can plug into a DC fast charger, high power DC fast charger. And that particular gas station has other amenities, right? I can stop and use the bathroom when there's food there. Uh, obviously, many convenience stores and gas station operators are starting to move upscale. Right, they're providing uh, small areas where I might be able to eat. Right, so a lot of people do dismiss gas stations, but in the right location and the and, and with the right charger, there it definitely can make sense. It does make you know the way yeah. you describe it. It does make sense because uh, you know you stop, you get a specialty coffee, and you get that four dollar coffee, and, uh, get, and you get sit there for twenty some, minutes. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're good. So I, I understand that absolutely. So, but your your point is also well taken that these can go anywhere, anywhere that people are parked for a while. It makes sense that uh, they would be charging if they can. Yeah, and that is the big difference 
in owning an EV and the lifestyle that it provides. And so let me give you an example. So the bread and butter, the heart and soul of Blink is level two charging stations. So we provide a whole range of charging stations. As I mentioned, we provide residential chargers, we provide level two chargers, and we provide DC fast chargers. But for Blink, of that, call it 25% of the market that is commercial or public charging, 80% of that is forecasted to be level two with about 20% of that being DC fast. So what does that mean? It means that as a consumer, anywhere that I'm spending some time, and we call it dwell time, is an opportunity for me to top off my car and plug it in while I am doing something else simultaneously, right? So currently, if I own a gasoline-powered vehicle, I go to a gas station for one purpose, really, and that is to put gas in my car. I'm not doing anything else while I'm putting gas in the car. may run into a convenience store, may grab a soda, things like that. But with EV charging, I could be at Best Buy, and I could plug my car in, and I can go shop at Best Buy, or I can go to the gym, and I can plug in my car while I am at the gym, right? So I'm doing two things at one time. And that hour or hour and a half you spend at the gym will give you a, a reasonable bang for your buck in terms of what you're charging on a level two charger in the parking lot, right? I mean, it's yeah. not like wasted effort, really. Uh, no, no, exactly. So to give you an idea, um, so Blink level two charging stations are what we call, you know, we, we refer to them as being future-proof. And the reason for that is that we have engineered these charging stations to be very high speed, in fact, at the very top of the level two technical specification. So without getting you know, too, too much into the weeds of the technical specs, I, what I will say is that this is what's called an 80 amp charger and it'll output 19.2 kilowatts. So the typical home charging station might give you seven kilowatts, right? So this is about three times faster than what a typical level two charging station will do. So our chargers, when they're configured properly, will give you about 60 miles of range within 60 minutes. So about a mile a minute. Now that does depend on the, the, the vehicle itself, right? And its ability to accept that speed of charge through its onboard uh, AC charger. But you know, something like a Tesla Model 3 or, 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 some, or some of the new cars coming out, like a Ford Mach-E, it'll be able to do that. I want to dive into this, uh, this whole notion of uh, electric vehicle sharing that you're talking about uh, before we're, we run out of time here. So tell me a bit about that, would you, Mike? We're talking with Mike Battaglia. He's Senior Vice President of Sales and Business Development at a company called Blink. Yeah. So it's a really interesting market, right? So first of all, uh, from a Blink business perspective, this makes sense for us because we own both the cars themselves, the charging hardware or the gas pump, if you will, and we own the gasoline, right? Or the electricity that's going to go into these cars. So if you think about, you know, a kind of a, uh, like a rental car model, right? Rental car agencies own cars, but they don't own typically the gas pumps, the gasoline, all that kind of stuff that goes into them, right? So we think we're in a pretty good position with Blink Mobility because we own uh, we own this kind of ecosystem end to end. From uh, a business model perspective, the way we look at this is it is a predominantly an urban application. So it is a network of vehicles that are available to a local community 
in order to use them for literally whatever purpose they'd like. It could be just test driving an EV in order to understand what is that experience like and does it do I like the way it drives, things like that. But it can also apply to things like gig economy workers. So maybe I am uh, delivering food through Uber Eats, right? And I could actually utilize one of these cars in order to do that, right? If I don't have my own car. So it enables a local community uh, to have transportation where they otherwise might might not. How short term are the usages of this? Is it as short term as an hour or two? Or is it short term as a day? Uh, what, what is the length of time or the minimum length of time? Yeah, I mean, like anything, right? Like any consumer behavior, it varies, right? But um, these are typically used for, you know, a, a couple of hours at a time. And it's you're able to do that. That I, that was my question. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that what yeah, consumers sure. are doing. You can yeah, you, you could actually get into one, and you want to go down to Trader Joe's and run some errands, and uh, you know you live in an apartment somewhere in downtown. You don't want to own a car, but you want to have a car for an hour or two a sure. week. That absolutely, seems like a, per, a perfect solution. Yep. And and there's and right now I think I think we have forty different EV charging stations around the city of LA that someone who utilizes Blink Mobility can either check out or drop off a car. And that's going to be expanding even further. Terrific. And you're, you're looking, you're, I guess you're test marketing in Los Angeles, but you're likely to do other urban areas as well, I imagine, if this goes well. Sure. That's a, that's a pretty safe bet. And I can probably identify some that would, would be <laughs> uh, logical candidates for that. Maybe even better than Los Angeles in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what else should we know about Blink that uh, we haven't uh, exposed in this interview up till now, Mike? So, so what makes the company, in my mind, really exciting is that we're not just selling EV charging stations. The mission of Blink is to be an owner-operator of charging stations. So what does that mean? That means that we will work with local businesses or uh, apartment complexes or you name it, right? Again, anywhere that there's a parking spot that is a high density population area, and we will offer to install EV charging stations at no cost. So the principle behind that is that we want to put the gas pump in in strategic locations throughout the United States and internationally. And we then will make money on charging consumers for the energy that's dispensed, right? Or the gasoline. So for Blink, it's really a long-term play on deploying this EV charging infrastructure out into communities and then eventually making back our investment through uh, charging events from consumers. Blink also goes to market in a very flexible way. So we have multiple different business models that we can work with a business on uh, in, in order to fit whatever their goals and objectives are. So I can elaborate on that a little more if you'd like. Yeah, would you? I mean, your goal yeah. really is to get into uh, strategic locations and, and maybe, uh, well, not just maybe, uh, to eliminate the competitors from getting into those strategic locations, right. to get in the right spots. And then you believe you'll make money and it makes sense that you would uh, over time by having those locations that are key. Yeah. And, and this is where Blink gets to pivot in a, in a number of different directions. And this is what demonstrates the flexibility. So number one. If someone wants to buy an EV charging station, they want to own it, they want to operate it, we'll sell it to them, just like our competitors will. A second business model, though, 
uh, is a subscription business model. So the, the best way to think about it is almost like a lease, right? So I can, for a f- low fixed monthly payment, have an EV charging station on my property, and I would I can control the pricing of that charging station, and I keep all the revenue associated with it. A third option, which is our most popular, is what we call a hybrid. And that is where the customer, our customer, will invest in the electrical infrastructure from their building to the parking spot. So they'll handle all the conduit and everything that's required. Then we will come in and we will install the charging station at no cost. So we call it a hybrid because we both have skin in the game, if you will, right? We've both invested in that parking spot. And when we do that, we split the revenue with that customer. Blink technically owns and operates the charging station. We control the pricing. If something happens to the charging station, we will come out and we will replace it. So we'll make sure that it is operational and and up and running consistently. Then we have a fourth business model where under the right circumstances, and the right circumstances are generally um, a really, really attractive location supported by Uh, either grants or rebates uh, through the federal government or local governments, things like that, utilities. And in in certain situations, we'll actually pay for everything. So everything from the electrical panel all the way to the parking spot, and we'll install uh, the charging station. Well, fascinating. Uh, Really cool ideas, uh, ways to go to market here with this. And Mike Battaglia, Senior Vice President of Sales and Business Development at Blink, thanks so much for being with us. We really do appreciate it, Mike. What great insights you've given us. Jack, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. And that was our interview with Mike Battaglia. He is the Senior Vice President for Blink. And a lot of interesting things to say about what has to happen uh, in EV charging, what can happen to make uh, EVs successful overall. So we hope you enjoyed that interview. I always enjoy speaking with Chris Teague, our co-host, inimitable, induplicatable. I'm not even sure that's a word, but he is that. Uh, he's terrific. Uh, he's recovering from an illness, and I hope next week he's uh, an even finer fettle. Uh, but Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jack, and thanks everybody for listening. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please go ahead and hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Leave us a review, too. That will help us continue to grow and get in front of more people uh, to bring them along for the ride. Yes, and if you like the show, please pass it along to a friend or neighbor or just somebody you meet on the the street corner on the bus. Uh, Tell them about America on the Road. We're on all the podcast platforms out there. I'd also like to mention that I have a book uh, that's been published recently called The GR Factor, Unleashing the Undeniable Power of the Golden Rule. So you might want to look for that. It's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, in local bookshops. So please support your local businesses uh, when you can. And uh, look for that. And... uh, Look for America on the Road in future episodes. Our thanks to Mercury Insurance for helping sponsor the show. And particularly our thanks to you for listening to America on the Road. We really do appreciate it. So join us again next time right here for another edition of America on the Road. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. 
Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com.